the social life. It's the Tabin Show. The Tabin Show. Don't ask if he's single. You already know. Cause it's the Tabin Show. A simple name for a simple guy with a simple face. It's the Tabin Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Taryn Show. I have probably my most special guest to to date. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking to this man for a long time. We uh, we talked about it in New York. We're finally making this happen. It's Eric Stein. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing good. I'm really excited to be here, Taryn. I've been loving these podcasts so far. What's been fascinating to me is that I'm friends with a bunch of the people you've interviewed, and yet I'm still learning new stuff about them. So, like, I feel like you're, you, you must have the magic touch in getting people to open up to you. It's, it's, it's been fun, you know, because, like, um, it's really the sort of thing where, like, I, I barely know this stuff about them either, and this is just, like, an excuse to, to like, get these probing questions and, like, get these people thinking about things and, and then revealing things that, you know, they may not have otherwise. Um, and it's been a lot of fun for me to get to know uh, these people who are friends of mine even better than I had before. Yeah, I mean, it also, it's uncanny how many similarities there are to feelings that I've had when listening to Jordan and Ian and Rob talk through their stories. Uh, so it is actually is making me feel a little bit like uh, of camaraderie amongst us all because I'm feeling like, yeah, okay, there are other people who get it, you know, which is uh, not always the case in this world. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I found too, where it's just like, you know, you usually you're stuck to having these sort of like surface level conversations a lot of the time. You're not really getting too deep. But then when you do, it's like, oh, wow, we actually feel very similar about all all sorts of things. Like I never would have thought that, like, I would, you know, be able to relate as much as I did to to Audrey of all people or like um, or, or any of these people. Like, it, it's just it's crazy. And it's it's been so much fun. Yeah, I, I know that you definitely connected with Brent's story a lot due to oh, your yeah. past as a male escort and <laughs> the murder trials you've been involved with. So. Yeah, you know, uh, it was like, wow, this is uncanny. I can't believe that we have so much in common. Um, <laughs> yes, I uh, can't wait for more Brent. Um, everybody's always asking about Brent. It'll it'll come. Don't worry. It was amazing. Absolutely fantastic. I honestly can't wait until uh, we get to the uh, the addiction stuff too. I mean, um, obviously some very harrowing things, but uh, but very very interesting, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to the conversations. And that's been another part too, where like I have had a lot of people come to me and say. I relate so much to the conversation. Like, uh, like I listened to the Jordan podcast and I want to be a teacher too, or I am a teacher. And like, I really related to a lot of that, or I had a similar condition and I had a similar experience where with the surgeries and everything like that. So um, it's just been, it's been great. And I, I don't want to keep patting myself on the back uh, about it, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's start talking about Eric again. <laughs> um, so uh, this is Eric Stein. For those that don't know, I know there are some people who uh, are not Big Brother watchers. Um, I do plan on getting people who weren't on Big Brother at some point. Um, but uh, for those that don't know, Eric Stein was on Big Brother 8. He was America's player. Uh, so unlike uh, basically anyone else who has ever played the game, he was forced to uh, do America's bidding during the season, uh, much to his dismay. Um, and uh, does very, very well. Ultimately became a very good friend of the podcast, um, has come on many times, is a fan favorite uh, guest on RHAP, um, and is a reality TV expert, um, has had a very, very interesting career throughout, uh, you know, all sorts of reality television uh, and competition uh, shows and all of that. So uh, lots and lots of interesting stuff to get into with Eric Stein. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I'm excited to talk about it as well. I, I've been very private in many aspects of my life in my time off of the show. Uh, I found it to be very invasive when I first got off of the show, to be perfectly honest. I had a showmance at the time, and people were getting involved in my personal life. People were calling my father's office uh, to rant and rave about the show, and it immediately just made me shut down. I was no longer interested in, I, I felt like honestly, the public uh, didn't handle my personal life well, and I felt like they were no longer entitled to having that information. So I really shut down. You are fully aware of this. I have known you for years, and think how long did it take for me to accept your Facebook friend request? <laughs> <laughs> because I keep a really tight circle. I had some very negative experiences when I was first off the show. And, uh, but you know what, it's been a decade now and, uh, I, I feel like, you know, I'm glad that I'm at a point where I feel more comfortable going back and, and filling in some of the gaps from, from the past several years. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so happy that you're, you know, you're choosing to share it with me here. Um, and, and everyone else that listens as well. So, uh, this should be a lot of fun. Um, the first thing I wanted to get into was, uh, because you've had such a, an interesting career, you know, you've, you've worked on a lot of different and, and varying things. What, like when you were, were growing up or, or thinking about like what you were going to do with your career, like what really motivated you and like, where did you see yourself going? So I've always been a huge TV fan through and through. I'm like uh, television made and television ruined at the same time. I've always watched way too much television. It was a true passion of mine. And then I went to school for television, ended up working in television. So you know how like some people have their work, then they have their hobby, then they have how they relax, how they wind down, what they do for research. Television is all of those things for me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it really was a pretty obvious path. The day that I realized you could major in television in college may have been one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> all, all of my friends are writing 50 page research papers and I'm doing uh, like a thesis on Dawson's Creek, I remember <laughs> at the time. And I, I was thinking, this is just so fantastic. But the thing is that it's not a very conventional career path. And it makes you uh, like you could go to grad school, sure, for like producing or writing or something along those lines. But you don't really learn anything. You either have the creative chops or you don't. And there really is no such thing as moving up the ladder or a middle ground really in the world of television. You're either successful or you're not. So what I have found and what's been very interesting in my whole career arc is that I've both been very successful and very unsuccessful at the same time. It's been a roller coaster of exciting, random, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities sprinkled in with periods of inactivity and complete disaster and, and feeling really lost uh, in the whole process. So um, I've always kind of thought I would end up doing something in this realm. And instead, I ended up doing everything in this realm and, <laughs> and failing at it and succeeding at it. Well, what, what do you think initially drew you to television? Did you did you just always like TV? Like what what started the obsession? I think I have a pretty short attention span. So <laughs> like, for example, to this day, I've still never seen the movie Titanic. And it's not really out of the principle of the matter. It's out of the fact that three and a half hours is just too long. That's, se that's six, seven television episodes for me <laughs> that I can make my way through. It's the same thing. I don't really read books. I read magazines or internet articles. And I really just think it was the situational humor of it all, 
the short form entertainment of it all. And it was just like the thing I did to relax. Uh, I, I really don't even know what spoke to me. I think I was always like a board game and game show person, as so many of your guests have actually said. So then, of course, in the early boom of reality TV, it all really spoke to me. I, I fell in love with it. And I started obsessively watching everything. And I mean everything. I, Rob and I have hit on this once or twice. But I have gone back and done a running tally. And I've watched something like 850 entire seasons of reality tv not episodes full complete start to finish seasons but then when you actually start thinking about it it's not that crazy because there's been you know 35 seasons of this one and 28 seasons of that one and i've been a true fan of most of them from the beginning yeah well i i mean was it like uh escapism for you like did you just like lose yourself in the world of these shows or um or or is it like or, or is it combined with this sort of uh completionism sort of uh drive that you have that you need to watch all of these things uh, i think it's a little bit of both i think once i start something i like to see it through but i do think that um what I really enjoyed, especially early on, was that I felt like the reality TV characters, so to speak, were much better characters than the written characters on television. Like, you couldn't write this shit if you tried, and when you do try, it wouldn't be nearly as entertaining, and it would be thoroughly unbelievable. So, I mean, I've always been a huge sitcom fan uh, for many, many years, but I found myself really gravitating towards the characters I was seeing on reality TV. And I remember that before I ever went on Big Brother, I saw a Survivor contestant bartending in L.A. And I thought to myself, how is this possible? <laughs> she was on Survivor. She did great on Survivor. Why, why is she bartending here now? And that was one of the most fascinating things as I got involved in this world and came to meet these people uh, in the past. I would have listed Survivors as, you know, top 10 celebrity I wanted to meet. And then when you actually spend time with them, it's not that they're not great, but it's that they're not celebrities, nor are they characters. They're the actual people. And uh, I mean, it's been very fascinating for me to transition from super fan into uh, participant because I didn't really get so much the super fan edit on the show, even though that was probably one of the, the first true people that was that like archetype on the show. Um, but for me, I would... The, I mean, I remember right when I got off the show, I got a phone call and it was um, Fair Play and Ethan Zahn and Jenna at the time. And like, I could not believe what was happening. <laughs> this is, I was beside myself. And I just feel like I, I've always connected uh, to the people who are on reality TV. They're never boring. They're always, uh, it's uh, truly these larger than life personalities. And I, I don't know, there was something about it that always brought me in and uh, I always wanted to work in it. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to get from point A to point B. But something that's kind of different about me is that I don't want to settle. I've never been someone who wants to settle. I have a friend who in his mid-20s, he got married. He did not have a stable career at the time. And his wife basically told him, go back to school and become a teacher. And I said to him at the time, you're in your mid-20s now. Are you sure that you want to do this for the next 30 or 40 years. I've never heard you express an interest in becoming a teacher. And he said, it's fine. It's, it's, it's basically, he was saying a very similar sentiment to what Jordan said when, when speaking to you. He was saying he wanted to do good. He wanted to go down that path. For me, I'm wired the exact opposite way. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, just like the teens in 2013 used to say, I'm very much of the YOLO <laughs> philosophy here. 
And if I'm going to do it once, I'm going to do it right. But the problem with only doing things that make you happy and that you find personally fulfilling and not just doing it uh, because that's what you have to do is that it leads to a lot of turmoil. And there, I've had a lot of downtime in my life and a lot of tough times where I was really lost both before and after Big Brother. And uh, I think that's an interesting part of my story. It's sort of the chicken or the egg of it all. Um, you know, was I lost and that's how I ended up there? Or did that even right. you know, further my trek towards uh, trying to search for ultimate happiness, but not taking the path of everyone else? I mean, I come from a family of dentists and lawyers and financiers and very successful professional people who went by the book. And my mother would always say, you know, if one of my kids are going to come home with purple hair, it's going to be you. And <laughs> I remember the day that I emailed my mom about five years after that and said, hey, remember that joke you like to say about how I was a different member of the family? Well, my hair is actually purple right now. <laughs> and I got my nipples pierced. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I've just always marched to the beat of my drum uh, actually, probably so much so that people have said, like, I marched to the beat of my own, like, not even a drum, because that expression is too traditional for me. <laughs> have, have you always sort of felt this way about yourself? Like, you always sort of planned that this was going to be your future? Or was there maybe a turning point that, that made you uh, head in this direction? I don't know. I'm, I'm a pretty weird, offbeat guy overall. But I just never felt compelled to do things because that's, quote, what you're supposed to do in the situation. It's just not the way that I'm wired. So I never followed like the traditional path of you do this and then you do this and then you do this and then you do this. So after I finished school, I just really uh, didn't want to just go down what one would say is like the, the standard route. But the problem is I never really drew up the roadmap for what the unconventional route would be because it was wherever the wind was going to take me. And that had a lot of pros and it also had a lot of cons. So what I found myself in was waiting for the perfect opportunity a lot of the time. And you can't just will that, you know, it's not like a great job comes knocking at your front door and says, hey, I hear you've been waiting for me. And uh, <laughs> here we go, buddy. And it took me a long time to come to grips with the fact that I needed to find a blend of hard work and game planning and still the freedom that I was looking for. And in this uh, sort of journey, it led me down some very, very bizarre paths along the way. <laughs> well, uh, do you have like a specific example of like something like early on that you're just like, you know, this is might be how it's usually done, but uh, but I just I'm going to do it my own way. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I guess I just feel like no pressure to conform to societal norms. So like uh, when I first got out of school, I moved back to my parents' house and I just felt zero urgency whatsoever to leave there. <laughs> I was like, this is nice. They have a lot of food. <laughs> I don't have as many bills as I would have if I was out on my own. And uh, I, I actually was, was at my parents' house for a good few years uh, after school and uh, all of my friends were, they were sort of just confused by the whole thing. They, they, why aren't you making a more proactive moves to do something about this? But I just didn't care. Like, it's hard to explain because it's so lazy sounding and so demotivating. But it's the honest truth. Just at the time, I was just really content enjoying myself and slowly easing my way 
into my career. And then like one of these days, actually, my younger brother is a few years younger than me. And he was about to finish up school and get his first major job. And he was like, hey, you want to go get an apartment? And like, that was the first time it occurred to me, like, yeah, I should probably do that, right? <laughs> so going to have to like take some proactive steps here, shake things up. And because uh, prior to then, I had had a, a couple of really interesting jobs, but they were all like insane experiences. For example, I used to write at World Wrestling Entertainment. This was like my childhood dream job. I was at WrestleMania like one when I was like literally three or four years old. And I had always loved it growing up. And to me, it was like the perfect blend of my two passions. It was television and this goofy pro wrestling in one. And it took nine months to apply for the job. I had five different interviews and it was, I mean, it was like a one in 50,000 chance of getting the job. And I got it. And I was, and, and it's like every time that it looks like I've really gone off the rails personally or professionally, <laughs> I would pull one of these rabbits out of my hat. That was the very first one. This was pre big brother, pre even uh, moving out of my parents' house. And it was like, I was basically telling people, I'm not going to take any old job and settle on it. I'm going to wait until I have something that means something to me. And they're like, that's not how it works. But then it was how it worked for me. And just <laughs> out of the, the clear blue, here I am on the writing team at World Wrestling Entertainment. And then I was working 115 hours a week for my entire duration there. And it took me about three hours before I knew that I absolutely hated <laughs> the place. <laughs> and then I was in a, a conundrum because here I am. I finally got this job. Everyone's so excited for me. I, I've done exactly what I claimed I was going to. I, I've generated this, this magical opportunity out, seemingly out of the clear blue. And I get there. And on day one, I'm thinking to myself, uh-oh. <laughs> Not, not good. <laughs> what, what about it told you right away that this was not going to be what you wanted to do? I, I believe I have told this story once or twice before, but uh, on the very first day, they told me at 3 p.m. to bring the CEO a Diet Coke. I said, all right, seems reasonable enough. I mean, I'm on the writing team, so I wasn't sure why I was like running these bizarre errands. But OK, they said he, he, he really likes that. But you knew there was something kind of like maybe they were setting me up in some way. So I go, I bring, the, they said, direct quote, no matter what he's doing, bring him the Diet Coke. And I was like, oh boy, like he's going to yeah. have his pants down. Like, I don't know what was going to happen. Um, so I go in there and it turns out there actually wasn't much to the joke. He was just on an extremely important conference call. And I came storming in like with this shit eating grin, like, hey, sir, here's a Diet Coke for you. <laughs> the man turns bright red, veins busting out of his forehead. He smashes his phone receiver on his desk and he goes, God damn it, Eric. And I mean, fuming mad. And I'm just like standing there like the biggest dope. Like, I don't know what to do right now. So I'm just standing there holding it. The man is like shaking with rage. <laughs> and then after probably a minute or two, he, he looks up at me and he goes, let me make this clear. God damn it, Eric. I love Diet Coke. Welcome <laughs> to the team. <laughs> then about an hour after that, um, they told me to call 
an employee of 20 years, ask him if we could film a segment at his bar that he owns and quote, tell him, you tell Tim White, he's gonna fucking die this Sunday. <laughs> uh, I was like, uh, well, I don't know Tim. So I think that that is gonna be awkward if I call him in that. And uh, each minute at WWE was just an extension of them just messing with you for the purpose of torturing with you. Like that was the entire purpose of the job. They hire low level people, they work them insane amount of hours and then they torture them to laugh at their face and then they know that the person's going to quit and then they hire someone else and continue the process well i guess when they have fifty thousand uh people to choose from yeah i remember uh like i think it was the first weekend i traveled to a live event with them and they sent me out uh they gave me one hour to find a thousand worms and a trap door in Cincinnati. And I said, not being a wise ass, like actually hoping for some guidance, like, hey, like, do you have a, a guy? Like, do you have a prop shop or like a special effects house that you use here in Cincinnati? And they just laughed in my face and said, <laughs> if you don't bring a thousand worms back in the next hour, you're fired. <laughs> so, so how long did this go on for? Uh, so so this is uh, one of the interesting experiences. So uh, it was automatically a three-month trial evaluation period. And I started in November, and we took a break for the holidays, and I came back like early on into January, and it was like approaching when the the review was going to be. And I was standing there with the HR person, and we sort of just looked at each other, and I was like, I don't really know if it's going to be you guys first or me first, but like, this isn't working. And she's like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> it was like a mutual, like quit slash, uh, just throw my hands up in the air and walk out slash. I wouldn't call it a firing, but just so much as this is just what they do with people. It's just like, basically they, if you don't commit to being a lifer for them. If you don't love every second of uh, this madness, they just move right on from you or you move right on from them. So here I found myself in this situation where I spent nine months and finally had done something with my degree and my life. And there I was two and a half months later back out of the situation. And uh, that was tough. It was tough. It was something that I had like really thought once I finally got that it was going to be this like huge boom to my life. I really had thought I had found like my calling, but I had not. So then I went through another period of probably six months or so where I, I, I didn't work right away. I was just doing like freelance odd job type of stuff, just trying to figure it out along the way. And then I had moved in with my brother at that point. And I was I was fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to just get a job in talent management. I don't know how I got this job. I was completely unqualified for it. And uh, that was another one of these where on paper, this sounded amazing to everyone. We represented like A-listers. I had super funny experiences and stories from inside the office. But there was a commonality between the talent management and WWE. In both places, I was doing all of the work and getting none of the money or credit. And I think that that's something that uh, really drove me nuts because I, I saw that my coworkers would be really excited when the wrestling show got great ratings or something like that would happen. And I realized I didn't care. I wasn't excited and I wasn't happy for them. 
And no matter how hard I worked or what I contributed, someone else would take credit for it. And the same thing would happen in the talent management. I, I would make a suggestion or I would fully negotiate a, a movie deal for someone and I would get an entry level salary and my boss or my superior in the situation would get literally a million dollars. And I was thinking to myself, I don't understand why I am the person who's making all of this stuff happen and conceiving this and doing all the work and spending all the hours and getting none of the payback. And I started to get really miserable at the job. But to my friends and family, I was really succeeding because now I was stabilized. I was in a, a great job, theoretically. I was out on my own. I was doing really well for myself. And it was the first time that everything seemed like totally stabilized for me. And that's when I applied to be on Big Brother, much to everyone's chagrin. <laughs> well, I mean, like, what was it about uh, Big Brother? Has you Had you always thought about playing Big Brother? Um, had that always been a plan for you? Or was it during this time of, like, uh, feeling kind of lost and, like, you know, you, d you didn't really know what to do after, like, a year of WWE and that falling through and then finally getting the talent management thing and then that wasn't what you were into either? Uh, was that what, what instigated the Big Brother thing or w were you always kind of thinking about it? I think I've always been looking for something more, an adventure, an experience, something that I could really dig my teeth into and just enjoy. And just the Big Brother thing, it, it does go back a little while. When I was lost the first time around, when I was graduating school, I applied to be on Big Brother 2. And I think the reason I was more drawn to Big Brother rather than Survivor is I uh, am not that physically fit. I, I'm pretty lazy. And uh, my entire skill set would just be like the gift of gab and persuasion and strategizing. And I thought, boy, it'd be a way easier to do this on a couch than do this in the jungle. So uh, I applied to Big Brother 2 right when I graduated college. I had just turned 21 at the time. And I went out of the country to celebrate my graduation with my girlfriend at the time. And I missed a call from Big Brother casting. And it was like, you're going to kick yourself. We're extremely interested in you for our TV show and like, but we're only going to be around for the next three days and otherwise we need to move on. And it was predating like international cell phone plans and stuff like that. So this was on my voicemail of my actual answering machine at my apartment. So I didn't get this message until it was too late. And I was kind of kicking myself for years and I would always talk about, damn, I wish I had gone on that show. That would have been so much fun. I think I would have been really well suited for it. And what happened was, is I was drinking with my brothers and my best friend at the time. And a commercial came on for Big Brother returning the summer that I was going to go on. And I started hemming and hawing about it again. Oh, I would have been so great on Big Brother, this <laughs> and that. And they said, you are literally never allowed to talk about this ever again. We're so sick of this unless you apply. And we were really drunk at the time. So we're like, all right, great. Let's just make the tape right now. And I honestly thought it was just a way to amuse ourselves for the night. I figured I'm never going to hear back from them. I am not a bartender in Santa Monica. Um, there is not, I didn't think there was a big desire for a, the most average person you could ever imagine to be on the show. And then three days later, I got the call and I was like, Oh, this is uh, not what I was expecting this to be. And uh, one of the really great things about this is that since I worked in entertainment at the time, I was at the talent management place. 
they were really afraid of it getting out that I was going to be on the show. So I literally did not tell my boss because I wasn't going to quit my job because they weren't guaranteeing that you're on the show. They're just saying, oh, you're getting close. You might be make preparations. We need to see a little more. We haven't decided yet. So I never tell my boss. And then the night before I'm going to go on the show, I like basically blow up my hard drive at work. I delete all of my emails, all of my <laughs> files, like everything else. And then the next morning, like as the handler is coming to take me away, I sent a one sentence email. Like I will not be coming in for a while because I have received another opportunity. I'm sorry. And literally like all, I did not even say what it was. And all my boss wrote back, which I didn't see until three plus months later was you've got to be fucking kidding me. You asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh when i got off the show uh clearly i wasn't going back there but i needed to get like my tax paperwork from them and i had moved Ooh. so they couldn't even send it to my apartment so i had to literally call the office and be like hey guys it's the e-man what's going on <laughs> and they were like we hate you so much <laughs> uh, actually also five days before leaving i got a quote 25 dollar raise which is not anything, but my boss said, I want you to know I've never given anyone a raise. And I know it's not much, but I wanted to show you how much you mean to us and how much we love having you here and appreciate what you've been doing. So I gave you a token raise in the middle of the year as a sign of you're a part of our family now. And then five <laughs> days later, I left without explanation. <laughs> oh, man. Traumatized for life, this guy. Yeah, I will give um, my family a great amount of credit. They were extremely supportive uh, when I went on the show. I, I, I think that a standard theme in my life has been that they might not understand it or it might not be the way that they would go about it. Um, so it used to get more questions back in the day. But eventually everyone kind of just settled into the fact that like, well, I'm just not like them. I'm, I'm a person who is going to go with the flow and it's going to have some good and it's going to have some bad. And when I went on the show, I think they were genuinely happy for me. And even from a business transaction standpoint, I, I made more money uh, in the two and a half months on the show than I was full time at my job at that point. So it was really no harm, no foul from that standpoint either. Yeah, well, I know Jordan talked about how he sort of saw Big Brother as a way to sort of fix all of the problems in his life and really make him uh, like find a direction for him. Is that how you saw the show at that point? I really think uh, that I just thought this will be hilarious to show my grandkids when I'm in my 70s someday, me making an ass of myself on <laughs> national television. One of the strange things about my Big Brother experience is I got what I think is a favorable edit and, and a, a really nice good guy. He's representing you, America, sort of boy next door edit. But the truth of the matter is I I'm, have a little bit more of an edge than that. I am a nice guy but I'm a little bit more R-rated than my show persona was. And uh, I really am, I'm a kind of like a wild and crazy guy. And I thought this would be a wild and crazy experience. Although I don't fit the prototype of a wild and crazy casting. You know, I wasn't Crazy James or something like that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, for me, that's really what this was. It was an opportunity to do something I love and just have this like insane experience. I and mean, who locks themselves in a house with lunatics who are trying to stab you in every which way uh, to take money out of your pocket. And I just thought, let's just see what happens. But for me, it was not about going on television as 
many people have said, I think uh, Audrey said when you were talking there, I, I would have played it in someone's garage or backyard. I kind of wanted the challenge, the experience, meet new people and just shake it up. I was just not happy working my ass off to no end. So I wanted to try again. And there I found myself back to the drawing board. But of course, when you come out of the show, then uh, you are once again left without a game plan. And here I was. I was back in uh, long enough ago that I was paid $3,000 to do an interview. I got paid 1000 bucks to show up at a bar. Um, I got writing opportunities and this and that. So probably when all is said and done, I, I really had made the most I had ever made in my career um, by a long margin over the course of the Big Brother year. And I had worked like maybe 15 days out of the year. And so then it leaves you in a place where it's like, boy, I really like making a shitload of money and working 15 days. And so then <laughs> I found myself in a whole other situation where it's like, oh, how can I do things that are really easy and really convenient and make a lot of money? And believe it or not, I pulled that off for a, a while. I was uh, one of the things that I did was I authored an encyclopedia of reality TV for the Fox reality channel, which was still operational at that time. It never actually got printed uh, because they went out of business, but I still got paid to write it. And I actually outsourced a good portion of the work to other people at odd <laughs> jobs. Like, let's just say they paid me like a, a, a outrageous flat fee to do this. And then I just had other people write articles for me for like one tenth of, of of like a little amount of it or whatever and barely did anything. And the work I did do, I would do at 3 a.m. or like it was like really super convenient. And it was actually a really pretty nice honor in, in my career. And I was still phoning it in. And it was still making ends meet with barely working. And I, I kind of got not addicted to that, but I loved it as a notion. I mean, realistically, who wouldn't want to make a lot of money and do very little? Um, but then I found myself in a really weird part of my career because um, I was certain that I was going to be back on Big Brother. And I was starting to get anxious about branding myself as a reality TV expert. So one of the main reasons, like, I didn't want to put it out there that I authored an encyclopedia of mm. all reality TV. And I didn't want to go on a podcast and offer analysis that was going to tell people, I know more about this than you do. And then immediately go home on an All-Stars. I didn't feel I got to play the first time. And I sure didn't want to set myself up in a situation where I was going to go home early because of my love of reality TV. And I feel like that was a a misfire, a really big mistake that I made in my career is that I should have just leaned into my expertise and gone and, and just forgotten about Big Brother. But instead, I was trying to juggle too many agendas and it left me shortchanging my career because I didn't want to make it publicly known that this is really my area of expertise. Well, yeah, well, let's let's talk about that, because I think that probably stems from your your sort of disappointment with your experience on Big Brother, right? Like, I mean, going into Big Brother, you had certain expectations of like what the game was going to be. And as I sort of mentioned at the top of the show, but like you had uh, an experience unlike any anyone else on reality TV in, in one of these reality TV game shows where instead of coming onto the show and being able to play for yourself, you get hit by this news that uh, your decisions are essentially going to be made by America. Uh, what was that like? Like when when what was the moment where they told you that it was 
it was bad, but it was not as anywhere near as bad as the actuality. When I first realized <laughs> it, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to be a big part of the season. And you're kind of feeling like this is an honor. You were selected out of a whole bunch of people. Um, I remember I immediately, uh, they, they gave me the contract and they said, I went through the whole casting process uh, completely from scratch. I did not know um, anything about America's Player. And I think two or three days before moving, they, they, all of the executive producers came to my room and they said, hey, we want you to read through this and tell us what you think. And as they were leaving my hotel room, one of them turned back around and said, actually, we don't really care what you think. Just read it and sign it or you're going home. <laughs> And I was like, I don't understand. And they're like, you're going to be involved in something special this season. And if you don't do it, someone else is going to because it's the theme of the season. And you then can't be in the house because then you'll know what the twist is and you'll know that this is happening. So right. it's either you or you're out of here. And I was such a big fan of the show and such a big fan of reality TV that I couldn't jeopardize uh, this. And they had me by the balls and they knew it. There was even comments along the way of like, you know, Eric, in the casting process, we've seen your bank account. We know, you know, like basically they knew I was the perfect person to do this because I was going to be able to get away with it, do it effectively. And I was too big of a fan to let it pass me by or to decline it. So I, I literally think when I walked into the room the very first time, uh, what they told me after the fact is I went up in the middle of their Polaroid poster board and the cast was built from there which of course i never knew at first i was like all right this could be kind of fun kind of cool i was looking for loopholes and once it got rolling uh it just it, it was honestly hell for me it really was and uh so then now i have this experience which is like this is the ultimate of the cliche it's the best of times it's the worst of times <laughs> here i am i'm on the show I'm doing pretty well. I'm living my dream. I'm having so much fun. Everything's rolling my way. And yet I can't play the game. And everything I'm doing, I know, is counterintuitive to what is my best move in the game. Look how much people struggle in this game as is. And then I had to do 30 things that were directly detrimental, and not minorly so, very detrimental uh, to my game. And all of the problems I had in the game were directly as a result of it. Long diary rooms and the banner plane and the hinky mm -hmm. boats. These are things that wouldn't have existed without America's player. And I was still jumping through hoops to accommodate these things and, and, and work my way through them. And I felt like the show did a really poor job of representing the actual rules and the actual impact of the twist on my season, I felt like they really just glossed over the whole thing. They, it was not clear that I was contractually obligated to do these things. These were not by choice. I was not being greedy and doing this for extra money. I was begging them to not have to do all of these things. And it was the exact opposite of that. And I feel, I think at one point, eight consecutive people that America had me nominate or go after went home in succession <laughs> and i feel like i really resent when people say uh when they're talking even about dick or the outcome of the season and they're saying well you know that was really affected by the uh, by america and the america's player twist i'm sorry the america's player twist was not in the house getting all of these things done <laughs> i was america was not there implementing these asinine strategies and maneuvers <laughs> that were sinking the game of all of my allies as I'm doing them. 
and making me look batshit crazy. And, <laughs> and yet somehow it never like registered or read that way. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I hate that this is the case, but, and it's hard coming from me because I'm going to sound arrogant in saying so. I know what I did inside of the house. And I know in my heart of hearts that I'm truly one of the best people to ever step foot inside of that house. But saying that makes me sound like such a fucking asshole <laughs> and it's incredibly obnoxious and everyone will troll me and dick will blast me and whatever <laughs> the case may be. But I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, it's the truth. And if people had any idea the extent of what I actually had to do for the twist and the ways that I implemented some of these things, I think they would feel very, very differently about me as a player. And I kind of felt okay about it for a while because I thought, well, of course, I'll be brought back because they know that they screwed me. And I was still a big part of the season. And I was still, I showmanced and I did comedic things and I flipped the house multiple times and I still made it far in the game. And then I hosted on season nine. I was called in for an in-studio interview in season 10 that I declined. I was re-sequestered for season 11. Then 12 didn't have returnees. 13 was the dynamic duos. And then I was called again for the coaches. So I had several near misses. I think Ian and I might be the only people in show history that have appeared back on the show to like host a competition or something who didn't at least have a chance to play again or come back into the game. I mean, even, you know, Brian Hart had, had a chance to get back in, into the game. I mean, even my own sidekick, Jessica, had a chance to get back into the game. So to me, it was a foregone conclusion I was going to get to play again. And I thought it would get easier as time went on. But if I'm being completely honest, I mean, publicly, I like to joke about it and poke fun of the situation and say, oh, I'm old now. They're not going to bring me back in this and that. But it eats away at me. And I wish it didn't. I really wish it didn't. I wish it didn't affect me in my actual day to day life. I wish 10 years later, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you this. But it makes me so mad and so disappointed and upset that I never had the chance to either get my ass kicked or show that I really was the player that I believe myself to be. And uh, it's frustrating. It really is. For someone that this was so important to, and I feel like I did so much right when I was in the house, and it just doesn't come across that way when you go back and watch the show. And, and, uh, and, and you can't talk about it without being self-congratulatory. <laughs> so I've basically just kind of like shut my mouth on it. And also, I can't even tell you the full details of America's player today because it's like you guys have insinuated on the podcast before it's like I know where the bodies are buried you know everything <laughs> that everyone has ever speculated about the show about how these twists work about the true influence of production and these twists on the game and so on and so forth I know it all and I and I know what it did to my experience and the thing is I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me so don't don't mistake what I'm saying. I love Big Brother. I still love Big Brother to this day. I loved my experience on Big Brother. The gamer in me, it eats away at me that I didn't have the chance to actually have the experience to either succeed or fail based on my own volition. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember I, I was, um, God, I guess uh, I was 15, about 15 at the time, uh, watching you play. 
and um like i was all over the live feeds at the time and you were like my my total favorite i was like i was like getting so mad at people on jokers for calling you a weasel i was like he's not a weasel um and a um, little bit of a weasel <laughs> <laughs> see now i watch we were watching uh an old big big brother eight episode in new york uh the, the other week and uh you just like weaseled into a room and i was like oh my god he's such a weasel i love it uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, to- yeah I, I totally own, own the weaseling <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the time though i was outraged um and i remember being so frustrated that like it was it, fe- it really felt like every single week i was like how is he going to get out of this situation and then like over the course of the week it was like wow he managed to like get on top of things and then like boom you're hit again with like this this thing that like that I couldn't understand why you kept having to do these things uh, that were so clearly against your interest. And it was like, you were constantly working and it made for a very entertaining season. I'll grant them that in the sense that like every single week, there was tons of work to do for you. And it was really fun getting to watch you do that stuff. Uh, But I like, and and I, I like at the time, I didn't even comprehend how frustrating that must have been for you. And it seems like you are a very competitive person, clearly. And like you, I mean, to this day, like the fact that this still eats away at you. I mean, it, it must have had a really lasting impact. Well, let's think about like some of the, the brief experience I had. I know we don't want to make this about the Big Brother experience, but I had to give the silent treatment to the HOH. I had to vote out the person who had campaigned to save me five days earlier, I had to, uh, I couldn't win HOHs because I would have to target my own alliance members. I couldn't align with half the house because I was always forced to go after them. So how could I align with them? I'd have to just betray them anyway. So that like took 50% of the people off the table for who I was able to play with. Then even in in light of all of this, I, I win a veto. The first veto I compete in the entire season, I think it was week nine or 10 before I was put into a veto competition. I win it. I can backdoor anyone I want. And I go into the diary room and they say, nah, you can't use the veto. So <laughs> I now have the, uh, the actual power of the game taken away from me. And of course, if they had told me I couldn't use it ahead of time, I could have thrown it to someone who would use it. But they didn't want me to do that. So they didn't tell me that I had that as a, a, an available option. Then looking at specific scenarios from my season, right? So they, towards the end, the week that we would have backdoored Dick or Danielle, you have, uh, I believe it was Amber and Zach on the block. And I was not allowed to use the veto on whoever I wanted. I could only theoretically use the veto, even in future weeks once we cleared this up, on the person America was targeting. So if I pulled Amber off the block that week, and then Jess put up Dick, I would have been forced to vote Zach out. So then I would have made, uh, I would have pissed off Dick and Danielle, pissed off Jessica, and still voted out the person who was on the block. Like, because I wasn't allowed to do anything else. My hands were beyond tied in this situation many, many, many times over. And I took so much heat from it from the fans who just did not understand what was going on. And at first I thought, oh, okay, they kind of have my best interest at heart. But when I realized midway through the season, no, they have Dick's best interest at heart. Um, what was I left to do? So I was forced to align with people I did not trust in the game because that's the only thing America's player was allowing for me to do. And then the final three people of the season were the only three people that America 
never gave me instructions to go after because I was only allowed to go after the people that they told me to go after. So I did, and those people went home, and the people I didn't go after stayed. It, it was really so frustrating. I mean, just as a, as a gamer yourself, you, you have to imagine you have this all laid out in your mind, and you show up, and it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, I had so many great relationships in the house. I could have gone any which way. I was the guy that it was going to be four weeks after they got evicted that they said, oh, damn, like, is that what was going on? Or mm -hmm. like at least three people in their exit interview with Julie said, I knew that this was a possibility. I did not know that Eric could have possibly been the person that was going to do this to me. I mean, I had these people so snowed. I, and I, I'm sorry, I, I'm taking this interview to say my true feelings because I feel like that's in the spirit of what you're doing with this podcast. And I'm telling you, I do not care what people say. I don't care what the the public reaction to this statement is going to be. If we had played my season on the up and up fair and square, I think I would have won 99 out of a hundred times. And I'm telling you, I was there. I lived it. I know what the dynamic of the group was and I know how the game was going. And I really couldn't give a shit if people feel otherwise, or this makes me sound like a complete <laughs> asshole. I'm just telling you it's the factual truth. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, 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 I mean, obviously, we did a, uh, you know, um, best uh, players to never win uh, ranking on the happy hour. And uh, you were, in fact, our, our number one pick. And we had a bunch of blowback, like, all oh, these people, they're just sucking up to Eric, because he's their friend. Um, but uh, I mean, it must have been even more frustrating knowing that, like, in, in at least from my perspective, coming out of season eight for a long time, a lot of people who, you know, many of them just watched the edit or even some of them that watched the feeds considered Dick to be one of the best players of all time. And you were seen as somebody who just like made a bunch of mistakes and let him win. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. Right, right. The 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 perception or the uh, just completely falsehoods of the where where I went wrong in the game or I should have never done this or I shouldn't have trusted someone with that. None of these things were a byproduct of my own decision-making, my own choices in the game. Um, and really, it has nothing to do with, with Dick. That's the thing that's even worse, is that it created this bizarre like, like rivalry or like ego situation between mm. us. But I was never trying to throw shade on Dick. I was just simply saying people do not factually grasp what I was required to do or the events of... The season and honestly i don't think that that he understands it and i don't think some of the cast still understands it because they couldn't possibly understand it it's just it went way too deep and it, it affected way too much of the season but in order for them to admit or acknowledge that they'd have to be publicly stating that they were not in full control of the events of the season and that my influence over the events of the season was really strong and no one's going to publicly come out and say that but I'm sorry, it was true. So, you know, it's, it's, and it's tough. So then it's like, then you left in a situation, which as I'm saying that for 10 years, you kind of have to just sit on this because otherwise you just look like an asshole, like no one tooting their own horn. Hell, if I was listening to you talking to another player, talking about how great of a big brother player they were, <laughs> I would, I would be rolling my eyes thinking what a, a joke this person is. But not only does that make you sound like a dick? So you can't go around saying that. But as I said, I thought I was going to play again. So I didn't want to assert the fact that I was such a great player. I wanted to say, oh, I don't know. I was just America's goofy guy just making these jokes and going along with it. So that way I could disarm people and have the chance to show what I was really capable of. And then that opportunity never came around. And there I found myself like five years later with a misperception of my time in the house and in me looking bitter if I bring it up 
and no second game happening. And then just then I started uh, feeling like, oh, yeah, this was going to get better with time. And it actually uh, got more and more frustrating. And uh, I mean, to this day, and this is no shade on the people that they bring back. I'm so happy for anyone who gets to live their dream multiple times. And of course, they should say yes to the opportunity. And many of them have been great additions to their seasons. I just have spoken to several other people who have not had the opportunity to go back, but in my estimation should have. And it's frustrating. I mean, and it's frustrating to them also. And, and, and their resistance to bring back some of these players, uh, I perceive it as they know full well that Ian and Amanda and Vanessa and Derek would just mop the floor with these people. And they don't find that entertaining. They would rather someone who's sloppy and making mistakes and impassioned and just going for it. Someone who plays the game more like Devon in the moment. And uh, yeah, so I, I feel like all of the strategic heavy hitters of the past 10 years got passed up. And for the more entertaining type of characters, which is fine, it's their prerogative but, uh, you know, it doesn't leave us any less frustrated. How would you say that this has sort of like impacted your your decision making moving forward from Big Brother in terms of like how much it has affected you and, and how much it it eats at you that you you wish you had a chance to play and that um, and at the very least you wish you at least got some sort of recognition for how much you got screwed over. Like, does that impact your your day to day decision making or at least your like your your long term decision making in terms of like what you're doing? Actually, it did very, very much. It did not right away, but in the greater scheme of things, this was a great lesson and very valuable to me because I come, I came to appreciate that I really don't care what other people think. Uh, I don't need the, the pat on the back for someone else. I have enough uh, confidence, self-awareness, and to, uh, to not need the validation. And I know that that seems counterintuitive to what I was just saying, but it's not. Because I, I realized that I don't need this, the, the pat on the back for what I did during my time on Big Brother because I'm fully aware of what I did. And, and some people can know and some people don't. And that's perfectly fine. But you get off the show and you read these horrific comments about you and everybody else. And you start to realize you're a human being. Every single person you've had on this podcast said this. They said uh, it, it affected them. You don't want it to affect you. A complete stranger saying damn, Eric is ugly. You don't want that to affect you, but it doesn't make you feel great. You know, it's not, it's not what you're like angling for in life. And if you're not in this type of environment, you have no reason to, you would never be in that situation. You have your friends, you have your family. There's not just random people launching insults your way about being an ugly rat weasel or whatever the case may be. And, and people would nitpick the stupidest things. You don't know how to cut a steak properly. You apply your deodorant too far down your armpit. You know, um, like the wackiest critiques. But then you actually get to start thinking to yourself. And you're like, OK, what does this matter? Why am I getting upset about this? Why am I being affected by this? And you realize you can't live your life trying to prove yourself to other people. You can't live your life trying to make other people happy. And that's when I took my previous philosophy on life and decided I was going to really lean into this. And there is no more hedging. There's no more halfway compromises. There's no more doing anything for appearances. I am only going to do 
what works for me. And I don't care if this is what you're quote supposed to do or the proper trajectory, or if it's the right age, I didn't worry about when you're supposed to get married or have kids or what your career is supposed to look like. I started taking more seriously the pursuit of what I genuinely wanted to do to make myself happy. But it wasn't easy for a while. I was lost for a long time after the show. And I do not blame this on the show. I was probably lost before the show, which is how I ended up there in the first place. But for a long time, uh, everything was a catch-22. It's like, okay, I need a new apartment. But in order to do that, I need a new job. And in order to, to, to have money to go out at night, I'm going to need the right job. But then in order to have the right job, then it's to meet people socially. I'm going to need that. And it was like everything was this big cycle and, and one big catch 22 after the other that to do one thing, you'd have to make a concession in the other. And I feel like this is something I have heard from people a lot and why I, I actually wanted to you know talk about this and open up about this a little bit is that life is not that easy. There is a lot of hard decisions and a lot of people are quietly very, very unhappy. And it's okay to not know what you're doing so long as you don't get stuck in that spiral. And there was a great awakening for me at some point. And I think feel like this is similar to what Rob was talking about in his journey from unemployment to hobby to super successful podcast, where I just woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be miserable and frustrated and stuck and in a rut. And I sat down and I genuinely thought to myself, what makes you happy? What are the things you love to do? And just forget the rest, forget the comments, forget the schedule, forget life's plans, and just focus on what you enjoy and the rest will follow from that point on. And it set me on the path that I'm on now. But it was a long journey to get here. So, I mean, you must have been getting a lot of attention, especially after Big Brother, like with all the fans. Uh, like, did you did you ever have any like weird interactions? I feel like every single person I've had on the podcast so far has had at least like one weird interaction that they may or may not have wanted to talk about. Oh, I've had several and I, I have not wanted to talk about them, but it's like, who cares at this point, you know, <laughs> and, and listening to Ian and Jordan discuss this, um, it really did strike a chord with me. The thing is, right, there are a lot of great people in Rob's community, in the Big Brother and Survivor communities. And I've made several of my closest friends in life that way. But the problem is you don't know who those people are right away. Right. And there are also a lot of real pieces of shit out there also. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a few uh, a few favorite fan interactions, actually. Uh, well, first of all, you just, in general, you get the people who ask such inappropriate, invasive, and bizarre questions all the time. And it got to the point where people would come up to me and be like, hey, did you guys have sex in the jury house? Tell me how you did it. And like, try and ask questions like in graphic detail. And I would start turning back to people and say, hey, tell me in graphic detail about the sex you had with your wife last night. Because if you think it's appropriate to ask me this question, well, then it's surely appropriate for me to ask you the question because we're complete strangers. So I have just as much reason knowing <laughs> this about you as you do about me, right? So not surprisingly, the fans would act, you know, just horrified by that. Uh, how could you ask me such a thing? And I'm like, that's right. How can you ask me yeah. such a thing? That's exactly the point I'm making. Thank you very much. And you always get the people, I'm sure you even get this in the podcast, who, who come up to you and they're like, uh, I really hated you on your season. Can I take a picture? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, 
well, which one is it? Do, 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 you, do you hate me? Or do you want to take a picture with me? Because I don't see how those things go hand in hand. Um, so one time I was, I had, you know, it's like the showmance was over and we were broken up and I was finally single again, but this was like a year or two into the big brother experience, but I had not really like lived up to the, uh, benefits i guess of being single and having been on television which is something ian <laughs> did talk about yeah. and uh so i was feeling like okay i guess this is a path like i can now explore for a little bit so i had uh, this <laughs> so funny and i cannot believe this even that like i cannot imagine my headspace now going back but this is like eight or nine years ago so it's like i really don't know what i was thinking at the time so i had written a blog on some sort of a website about big brother and a fan who was um really pretty attractive like hit me up and was like oh i really enjoyed this i think i was lamenting the fact that i was bored and i was at home and i was watching the live feeds instead of like going out and she was like ah, i'll go out with you and i was like you know what all about experiences. I'll just go out with this random girl. Let's see what happens here. Uh, in, in a lot of the past fan events, like the uh, some of the fans were older. There was a lot of people, you know, who were married. Like it was, it was kind of a rare thing to see like a single twenty-something fan of Big Brother at the time. I feel like that's actually changed a little bit now, but at the, at the time, this was like a real rarity. So I have this girl and a few of her friends and a few of my friends over to my apartment. And we're like drinking and hanging out. And like, you could tell the only reason she's into me is because I was on the show. And that's not really my style. But at the time, I was like, all right, I'll just have fun with it. It's just like a random event, just like mixing up life a little bit or whatever, right? Um, so we hang out for a little while. It's reasonably fun. I go to the bathroom at some point or whatever, and they just leave. And the girl steals a prop from one of the veto competitions out of my apartment. <laughs> like it was from the Otev my season. And you had to collect these, these rats that had like poems about the house guests on them. Right. Mm -hmm. So they send them to you in like the box afterwards. And I had them like on my like microwave or like my refrigerator or whatever the case may be. The night was like wrapping up. So she was like going to be leaving anyway, but literally does it in a way that she knows that like I'm out of the room for 30 seconds and just takes this. So I text the girl and I'm like, I can't help but notice that you left <laughs> and I'm missing my belongings. So like, you, I mean, it was, a, of course, a plastic rat that I had three of. So it's not like I was like robbed, so to speak, <laughs> but I kind of was robbed, you know? So I was like, yeah. so I was like, what was that about? She just goes, your brother told me that I could. My brother was standing next to me. So I was like, uh brother like did did you tell her she could just like take things from her apartment he's like fuck no of course i didn't <laughs> tell anybody that and i was like oh well that's unfortunate so then the funniest part is so then i'm like all right i hate this girl like i'm never speaking this her again she obviously had nothing to do with me she's just like a psychotic big brother stalker she starts showing up at every event in new york for like the next five years after this <laughs> And, and she was really pissing me off because she's like trying to weasel her way in with like everyone who comes off the show. And like it was kind of working like she was becoming like a fairly regular presence on like the New York reality scene. 
And one day she said something to me that pissed me off. And I literally whispered in her ear. I go, you do realize these people are my close friends. And if I ever told them what you did to me, you would never be welcome back at one of these. And she had to look like she had seen like a ghost. And then I, I that was it. She just stopped attending from that oh, point yeah. And I didn't actually mean to like menace the poor girl. I was just saying like, stop fucking with me. I have this over you. And you should be so lucky that I have not outed you if i told everyone that you're like a danger to their belongings <laughs> and then my my other uh great experience which no one would be uh excited to talk about publicly is i was actually catfished in 2009 i believe and oh my. and um at some point back in the day, I had like, I don't know, like 30,000 MySpace friends and this and that. When I first got on Facebook, I, I've had a private Facebook for many, many years, in part because of things of this nature. Um, but I guess at some point, like when I first got it, I had carried over some of like the MySpace people who like were like big fans or you could talk to a lot or whatever the case would be, who you kind of quote, no, but you don't really know or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. So I... um actually talked to this girl for like a few months like pretty extensively like back and forth a handful of times whatever the case may be uh this in all fairness to me i want to clarify this was before even the movie catfish let alone the tv <laughs> show like this was not like really like a known thing at the time and i definitely mm. was well aware of the fact that like some of this girl's story was not quite adding up but she was perfectly pleasant i was completely single i was like there's no harm, no foul. I can have a conversation with someone online without this becoming like a catastrophe. And if I, if I meet her, I meet her. If I don't, I don't. Like, who really cares? It was not like a big deal, but it was like, a, it took up a, like a little bit of time. I, I like became like a little bit invested in it. I was like, oh, this is someone who I'm really enjoying like speaking to or whatever. My birthday rolls around and she sends me a gift in the mail and this idiot has her like return address and like billing information inside and it does not match up with any of the information she's provided me with oh no and so i call her i was like oh i i i got your 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 gift in the mail i i really appreciate that uh but there was something that was like a little strange about this or whatever and so she's like uh you got me oops <laughs> Now, as it turned out, it, it actually was just uh, a girl in her twenties. Like it, it was nothing that was like particularly mortifying to me. Uh, yeah, I was I was not talking to like an eighty year old or uh, you know something along these lines. It was it was yeah. it, it was it, it was what it was. But I I it, I felt completely mortified because I'm a pretty smart guy, and I'm like, what was I thinking? And then I like mm -hmm. it, like that. That's when I started tightening up a little bit and it's like yeah all right maybe maybe let me be sure that i have met everyone that i'm speaking to on social media and know them a little better uh than i do now i mean i actually find it hilarious um to this day at this point or whatever and people like try and make fun of me about it and like like in my fantasy football league like my friends like name their team name like the girl's name <laughs> and stuff oh, like no. that um but the thing is, right, I don't really feel that badly that I was a trusting person who thought that someone I was talking to was a nice person. The fact that they wanted to fool me is really on them. Yes, it was a little gullible of me or whatever the case may be. But like I, I now just find it absolutely hilarious.
Well, what's like what is the feeling the moment you find out not happy yeah <laughs> i was really actually i love the tv show now i'm sure it's in part fueled by the fact that i once like lived this and i always think to myself boy these people handled themselves really well when they find this out or whatever like i was so pissed because you you actually have personal conversations with the person. So your first immediate thought is like, okay, so now a psychopath who was lying to me is like going to like tell everyone about like these intimate like talks we had about like my family or like my health or like things that are like, like this was like an actual friend to me, this person. Um, so that's your first like thought process. But what you realize is the person, they are actually like, they're psychotic. So <laughs> they're in love, they're basically in love with you. And like, uh, they're not understand like, but that was the real me. So like, I know I was lying about like, who I my identity and my name and my picture, but like, our talks were really the same. So we really can be together. And I was like, uh, you're a fucking liar. <laughs> like, we well, cannot be and we're not going to be under any circumstances <laughs> whatsoever. And um, I felt like, yeah, I think I was just like nervous, but you could tell that she was a lot more nervous and like she was concerned, like the authorities would be involved and this and that. So like, I think once or twice afterwards, like she'd hit me up and be like, hey, so like, you still mad or can we like get back to talking again? And I, I just like wrote back, like, like lose my number. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like it's not, it, it, it was, it was an interesting experience to say, to say the least. And it's been interesting for me since that time, because in New York, we have a really active reality community. So we probably have six or eight big events a year. We've had, you know, huge survivor viewing parties and the podcast and the premiere party for Big Brother finales and this and that. So there have come to be people that are legitimately close friends of mine who were fans of the show. And that's awesome. I'm a fan of the show. If I wasn't on the show, there's a good chance I would be attending that event as a fan. So I think it's awesome. But it takes a long time for me to get there now. And like we, we need to have a lot of conversations over a lot of beers over a lot of time for me to exchange phone numbers or whatever the case may be. Because now, unfortunately, you have to have as the default setting is this person to be trusted? And can I um, sort of allow them to have information about my life that I don't necessarily want out there for the world to know? So it, it is kind of interesting because we're not celebrities at all. I've mm -hmm. never once thought to be one. I don't even think we're Z-list celebrities. But as television personalities who people are aware of in some way or another, it creates a really bizarre dynamic where people think they know you, people will approach you. And it's like, I'm thinking, how do I know this person? Did I go to high school with them? Did I go to summer camp with them? And then you realize, oh, no, they recognize me like from the show. And it just creates this really bizarre dynamic between the two people where you unfortunately almost have to question their intentions. But it's like, why? I didn't do anything important or cool or there's nothing that should be the question. Like, who gives a shit? I went on a reality TV show a decade ago. But uh, yeah, through the, some of the early experiences. Like, when I first got off of Big Brother, and this was back in the MySpace days, I was dating Jessica in real life afterwards. 
And I remember like the first week or two when I got off the show, I went bowling with my lifelong like family friends and there were men and there were women there. The women were people that I had known since first grade who I grew up like going to school with who are married. They had kids. They were literally of, they were friends. They were of no threat to the relationship. And I remember fans by the dozens sending Jess messages. Oh, is this the way it's going to be now? Eric's back home and he's going bowling with the bitches. And he thinks he's a big shot and he's hitting on women without you there. And it's long distance. And like, he's just running amok with all these women. And it was so insufferable that it was like, all right, that's it from now on. That's it. I'm not I'm never commenting ever again on if I am single, if I'm in a relationship, if I am super successful in life, if I'm super failing at life, because basically, unfortunately, a couple of bad apples lost the right to know for everyone else. And then also I had that moment of awareness of like, does anyone really care? Like, like I'm a nobody. So and I, it was great. So I was able to retreat back into my hole. And uh, I haven't been catfished since. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a moral victory, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, mentioning that you, you know, you've gotten to a place where you don't care. And I like, as you mentioned, like, it does seem, uh, you know, to counter what you were talking about, saying that you feel like you're one of the best players to ever play the game, which feels like you're trying to to get a perception of yourself out there but i do i think what what sells it for me is that you you know that by saying that like the majority of the response is going to be what an asshole and you even say like people are going to say i'm an asshole for this um but in many ways by saying that that is you being like you know what this is what i believe and i don't care if people are going to shit on me for it because that's just the way it goes and uh like i i think i really appreciate that yeah don't get me wrong by no means as you said am i bringing this up now to toot my own horn or to get any form of accolades like you said if anything it's going to just be met with a big eye roll it's just (laughs) uh, what what has happened is i'm taking ownership of what I genuinely feel, what I actually think. And I'm, I'm just putting it out there. And uh, yeah, and I think it's way better. I really think in life, people, uh, they get so caught up with, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is how I have to make my family happy. This is what you do on this holiday. This is just mm-hmm. the, the life's rules. And I think that people could be so much happier if they simply embraced, I understand this is what works for you, but this is not what works for me and 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 honestly along the way my my friends have come to be really fantastic about this my family has been all along in understanding that just because what i'm doing is unconventional and uh it's not what they would do i would rather go through and and we'll get to what i'm doing now i'd rather go through a hard three or four years where things are not perfect to enjoy the next 30 years of my life. And I think that's a huge mistake people make. They settle, they get complacent, or they say, I must come up with a solution right now to address this. And then they're miserable with what they're doing because they're not actually pursuing what makes them happy. It's just what they think they have to do right now. And that's why so many people who marry young end up getting divorced or who end up absolutely loathing their job. And I'm just not that guy. I'm not going to live a life of uh regret so instead what i found myself doing was living a life of confusion for a long period of time (laughs) where i had no idea what the hell i was doing and then only in really boiling it down to you know what i'm just gonna just do what i really want to do and i'm just gonna make it happen 
And uh, only there did I lead myself to actually coming out of the other end of this. But it took a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's that's where I am right now, sort of like, you know, I, I got out of college and, you know, they I, I had a couple different jobs at the time. And one of them was like as an assistant editor. And I knew that if I stuck with that for a long time, maybe I could be an editor on on a, like a reality TV show or something like that. And and that could theoretically be successful. But, you know, I talked to one of my editing professors and he was just like, yeah, it, you know, you you struggle for a long time and then you get there. And it's like, well, this is basically the same thing. And I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted. So uh, but then I, I ended up just at like a job at like a like a startup, just working like making videos for a company. And that was like fine, but it was boring. And then like getting into podcasting, it's just it's been what I've loved to do. And I just find myself like it's it's a ton of work like this. This summer has been a ton of work. I've been just like it's been waking up podcasting, editing or whatever until the end of the day for for like weeks now. And I've just been loving it. And and I, I at the same time, it's like, can I be successful doing this? Like, I have no idea. But I, and I sort of feel like in this realm of of this like nebulous thing where it's like, I I don't know if I can continue to do this, but I know I feel like I want to. And so um, I, I can completely relate. And I feel like you are you're helping me sort of like uh, visualize what like I might want to do in the future. What's the response been for you? I know that like uh, as we get to what I'm doing now for work, I have a lot of stories about this. I feel like a lot of times people when you have a career creative job and you're kind of doing things your own way they make these snide ass remarks like oh i i love that you're doing so much work with your <laughs> hobby like uh i'm that's cool taryn that you get to talk about those cute little tv shows sometimes but what are you gonna do next like do you get any sort of obnoxious sort of people who are skeptical of this as a career or do you find that people are embracing the fact that you it might not be what they love but it's something that that is a legitimate career and something that you're happy to be pursuing I, well, I think luckily for me, I'm pretty selective about, you know, who I, I like have around me. And so pretty much everyone in my life is is very supportive of like like they're all like super happy. Like, uh, you know, some people are like, you know, uh, how long is that going to last? Uh, you know, like, um, are you going to be able to uh, survive? And uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question quite yet. But um, but, yeah, but you're riding until the wheels fall off. That's yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. <laughs> That's just it. If you if you're thinking about planning out every millisecond of your life, that might be a concern that you now have. And I mean, Rob has expressed this many times. What happens when Survivor goes off the air? Well, who mm -hmm. cares? Because right now it's on the air. You know, right. people get too caught up in the the what ifs and the stress of it all and the future projections of of what could go wrong and and oh, I'm so scared or whatever. And then they don't take any sort of a risk. But instead, you're embracing it. You dove right in and you want to know what if it if it only lasts two years. Well, then two years from now, you'll figure it out or right. you'll have two years of great experiences to parlay into something else. So, yeah. And when I think about all the time I spent at my, like my previous jobs, it's just like it just I mean, I was making a, a decent living and, and I was doing pretty well. But I, I I wasn't happy. Like I wasn't enjoying my. It feels like I wasted my time. And like this, like doing this, it feels like I'm doing something that matters to me. And and like if even if it only lasts a summer or or two summers or whatever, then uh, I think you know I think you're right. I think it is worth it to to take the shot. 
I actually, I did go to, there was a, uh, there's this thing called the podcast garage here in Boston and they were having like a, you know, like a podcaster get together kind of thing. And I was like, you know what, you know, let me, let me go see what this is all about. And so I went there and it was like the like worst and most awkward experience of my yeah. life because these are like NPR people and they're like talking about like, oh yeah, you know, I'm like going overseas to do like podcasting stories about like these social issues. And they're like, so what do you do? And I was like, talk about reality uh competition shows and like the the like they were so friendly and interested in their faces just dropped completely just like they could not care less literally i had one guy he as soon as i told him his face dropped and like 30 seconds later he walked away from me like it was <laughs> it was absurd i that is definitely something i i have experienced you get such a bizarre range of responses when you tell people that you were on a reality tv show some people think it is the coolest thing ever and more a lot more people think that it is so bizarre or so <laughs> trashy and so awful or whatever it is it's it's not surprising to me that you got that response <laughs> yeah uh but anyway so you you know you've gotten to this point now you know you've you've gone through all this stuff you've finally gotten to the point where you feel like you know what i'm just gonna completely lean into this uh, you know buck tradition uh, and and just like not care what people think so where does that lead you in terms of your direction in life so i was doing a whole bunch of freelance work and i was doing like sort of odd jobs in tv i was writing for blogs and this and that so i, I was uh, piecing together basically i was working when i when i had to and the time had come where it was eric you need to like get a job again like i had i had mm. hit that as a moment in time it was this has been fun and all you've like as i said i rode this till the wheels fell off but now these uh, perks and opportunities and blowback and show related things and television things I was doing, I, I needed to like buckle down. But the problem is I hated so, so much in my previous jobs, as I had noted, that uh, I was working on things, but I wasn't getting like it wasn't for my own benefit. It wasn't for my own passion. And it was driving me nuts. And I, I realized I need something in order to motivate myself. Part of why I'm so stuck is because I don't care about someone else's company. I don't care about someone else's idea. I care about my own stuff. And uh, so about three and a half, four years ago, uh, my best friend, Mike Stern and I, who I, I did the uh, very brief run of a podcast for no one with, um, <laughs> we decided that we were going to launch our own company together. We were having a discussion one night about um he is an editor he's one of the supervising editors for the teen mom franchise so he had been doing this for about like 10 years and he was basically saying well eventually i i, I don't i'm not going to be doing this this is not going to be my life's work i'm not going to be a 50 year old who's editing at an mtv show and he was talking about what are potential next steps in his career and i was saying yeah i just need to find something that i'm passionate about and we used to get together and have a beer and kick around reality tv ideas and what would always happen is like three years later, the thing we had joked around about would actually become a show. This <laughs> happened time and time again, probably 15 things that we had exchanged emails about. And then three years later, I would send him the blurb saying that this show is about to air. And then I would attach the email chain below that we had had about this years earlier. And we kind of had this, you know, shit or get off the pot awakening moment where we said, you know what? let's actually 
come up with some ideas, create some stuff, and actually become a production company and let's try and sell unscripted television concepts. Okay, that sounds good and all, or whatever, except like we don't have a company. There's no infrastructure. <laughs> There's no money to start this with. We have our own natural knowledge of the situation. I went to school for producing. I had worked in writing and all of these like entertainment areas. And his specialty was on the technical side. And we thought, okay, well, this blends well together. We didn't have a fucking clue what we were doing. But Mike had freelanced as an editor at several production companies around the area. So we reached out to all of like the showrunners and the people that he had worked with through the years. All of a sudden after creating like our first handful of concepts and developing them. And, and we made like little pitch tapes and we, you know, treatments and, and one sheets and this and that. But we, we, this was really like at the time it was more or less a hobby. We had no idea what we were doing. Talk about building something out of nothing. Like we didn't have a clue, but all of a sudden we're in these meetings with really legit companies. And like MTV is considering buying our shows and we're going like, oh, my God, we're so in over our heads because then they start <laughs> asking all these questions. It's like, OK, so like you guys are going to like, you know, are you guys going to be like the physical production company on the show? We have no idea what this even means. Like we don't understand that there could be the content creator versus the creative side of things versus who is literally making the TV show. And they're like, uh, so like, are you like that's that's going to be you guys? And I was like. I, I, I don't know is it you like you tell me I, I have no idea what's going on here and it it like started going bizarrely well for two guys who literally for all intents and purposes we just showed up off the streets and we we didn't really know what we were doing and we found ourselves in partnership and we were getting like network money to do things and build out concepts and every like little thing along the way Every time like we got like our first meeting with so-and-so or like a great production company partner, it was so exciting. And I was like, wow, this is really different. I'm, I'm so into this. I found myself up at 4 a.m. and I'm doing work and working 19 hours. And I was my own boss, so to speak. And we, we really didn't have anything that was like physically going on yet at the time. And, um, but I was, I was, it was like a, a labor of love. I was actually throwing it the same way that you have been spending your summer and it makes it feel like you're not working. I'm here with my best friends and we're getting to go into MTV and talk about reality TV shows. But there was a disconnect because we were at fucking MTV about <laughs> selling TV shows <laughs> and we had no idea what we were doing. And then it was like this bizarre sliding scale where it's like, uh, okay, we kind of got really kind of far and we jumped into things, but then we had to like go back and like, okay, now we need an actual company. Right. And so we kind of had to rewind, start the process over because we were learning the whole thing from scratch. When people would use terminology, I would literally on conference calls with Mike text him as we're having the phone call saying what does that mean i literally <laughs> do not understand what they are saying we were learning everything from the ground up and so little by little we we got an attorney and we we had you know a partnership and a concept and this and that and it was all like going like really well and then somehow we ended up getting an offer to be represented by one of the major four talent agencies there are basically is icm there's uta caa 
and William Morris Endeavor, and they basically represent all of Hollywood, all production companies, all celebrities, all everything. And uh, somehow we got offers from three of the four of them. But again, just two random guys off the street who have no idea what, what they're doing. So then we got ourselves in a situation where it, it really was almost a hobby, but then it's like, well, now we have this agent and all right, cool. This is awesome. But then the reality sort of set in. Mike has a wife and three kids and is still working his full-time job. And then I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> I am unmarried and do not have that level of obligation or financial responsibility in my life. But I had the urgency of needing to make money and make ends meet. So we met this sort of we, we we sort of reached the point where it's like okay if we're actually doing this as a job then basically mike you have two full-time jobs and basically eric you have none but you're working 90 hours a week so it's like <laughs> I, it's a full-time job to no particular end so that very very interesting very very quickly and then here i was back in the scenario of well we would need people for something that we were filming. We'd need an extra or we would need a casting or we're looking for a talent or, or someone who has an expertise in a certain area. And I was kind of faced with the reality of, but if we make this a public thing again, the fans will be all up in our business and they won't comprehend what we're doing. And they'll say, oh, what about that stupid project you were working on? And how's that coming? And how come it still hasn't happened for you yet? And it'll become the, the script will get away from us. We won't be able to control the narrative of what's going on here. And we weren't ready to share it until there was something to share. And then mm -hmm. it almost kind of became like my, oh, of course, I'll be back on Big Brother. And it was like, oh, yeah, well, we'll tell people what we're doing. Like when we sell a show and it's all buffo. And I'm like, hey, hey, look, guys, Eric's back in business. He sold his own reality show. But then we didn't sell a show. So then instead, <laughs> we're trucking down this line. And it's like, okay. And uh, I'm pouring my heart and soul into this. And time is starting to go by. And then I'm loving every second of this. This is everything I've ever wanted to do. And we're doing all aspects of unscripted work. And we're getting so much better at it. But yet, not making any money. And uh, not having like this as a truly sustainable career. I mean, maybe we get a freelance thing or a consulting thing here and there, which would allow me to push it a couple more months into the next thing. But this is not like what your life's work could possibly be. So there I am faced with the decision because I start getting offers from all of the companies that we're partnered with. Do you want to come and do this for us in a full-time salaried position? But then I would have been right back to where I was where my ideas are making someone else millions of dollars and I'm making a smaller base sort of salary. And I made the decision then in light of everything that we discussed that I'm going to do this until we sell a show. And the weird thing about doing creation and creative work and owning a small, they call it a shingle production company because it's like literally like the shingles on the door and like that's the extent <laughs> of your office. Like that's, that's basically what it is. And um, we, you know, we work out of like our, an avid in the basement of Mike's house and uh, like things along these lines. And we just had to decide right then and there, I'm going to do this. And if it takes me a long time to do this, um, that's fine. But then, uh, so for the last few years, I've really been going off of 
very limited money in order to pursue what actually is important to me and makes me happy. And the strange thing is, in, unless you're working for someone else, there is there's only selling a show or not selling a show. So there was these incremental victories along the way. But now it's like, okay, you guys either have things on the air or you don't have things on the air. And so people see it as, as a failure, not comprehending what strides we're actually making and, right. and how it's coming along and how close we've gotten and the amazing partners we have. And you, we see that progress. But again, uh, yeah, if you're looking to appease other people, it looks very questionable at the surface. But I have faith in it, and I'm going to go with it and, uh, and hope it all works out in the end. And if it doesn't, well, then I pursued what makes me happy, and I know I pursued it to the fullest. I'm not someone who, who likes to waste my own time, and if I didn't think that there was a purpose to it, I, I wouldn't be doing it. So what, what was the timeline on this? Like, When did you start this, and how long did it, did it go, uh, or has it gone for? So it was probably about like uh, three or four years ago, and we had probably about five show ideas that we had had from back in the day. And um, they were things that were things that we had been talking about for a decade. I mean, probably even predating Big Brother, just he's a fellow big reality fan of mine. And we, we worked in production and he worked in editing. So like this was our actual careers, but we had no business for like all intents and purposes having a production company. Like we didn't have the infrastructure or money or the exact experiences of doing that. So at first, uh, when it was a few years ago, we had these like few ideas, but it's kind of like, you know how like when a band releases their first album, a lot of times their first album is actually their best work because it's like 10 years worth of songs that they wrote. Right. That was kind of what initially happened with us. It was like our first batch was great because it was like our life's work. <laughs> so, so we brought all this stuff out not knowing what we were doing. And it went over like shockingly well. So now we're like in like deep in these negotiations and we're building things out and reworking them. We're having conversations with the likes of Endemol and Fremantle and major networks and huge part Lionsgate and Sony and this and that. And we're like, what is happening? Like we literally like took this stupid idea from our laptop and here we are now having this like great opportunity. But then when none of them sold, you you have to always go back to the drawing board. But now we're all like cocky about the whole thing. We're like, oh, this is great. Like we're, we're, we're going to be like the next Mark Burnett's or whatever the case may be. So we send out our like next batch of materials and it's like falls so flat. No one cares at all. <laughs> They're like, these ideas are really half baked. Like you don't have the right talent for this. Uh, not not like our skill, like literally like the on air talent. They're like, you, 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 you need a person for this. What? This is nothing. This is just a sentence like this is not a TV show. And it's like all of a sudden people are, are, are taking us more seriously. So they're taking the work more seriously. And we realize, oh, we're not hot shit here. Like we need to like actually. So then we like retreated back a few years ago at this point and really took the time to build out our body of work and development. And we did um, everything, dating shows, competition shows, game shows, social experiments, talent driven things from real estate things to heavy metal from, um, you know, characters we did it from we found in castings online to uh like really high-end games like try to invent the next survivor and what we found is we would get basically in football terms we'd get to the one yard line but we weren't scoring touchdowns and we we finally asked one of the executives well what what's the issue here what is the problem and they said the issue here is that the two of you have never produced a television show in your entire life 
And it's one thing if you're bringing us like a character, because then we can envision the show. If I'm mi- literally trying to sell the Taryn show, well, Taryn's <laughs> right in front of them. So they can understand what, like, oh, that's like, if you're doing Chris Lee Knows Best, right? Then it's like, well, I understand what a show about Todd Chrisley is going to be. But if you try and sell Survivor and it's not based on intellectual property or a Norwegian format or <laughs> a pre-existing book or there hasn't been 10 shows just like it, so that way the network executive can say, oh, well, I had every reason to greenlight this. They're scared to do it because they're basically giving millions of dollars to two guys who do not have a proven track record. So no matter how much they want to, their necks are on the line. So like, for example, think about a show like Utopia, right? Someone takes a chance on Utopia, the entire New York division of Fox got replaced after Utopia because it was a multi-million dollar bust. So then it's like, well, I'm not going to take a chance. Like, so if what they basically told us is go back to the drawing board and get partners on all of these and just have the established company pitch them and then we'll make your shows. We're just not going to make them with just you guys, basically. So then we were in a scenario where we're kind of um, eating it on on our own deals. We are actually the minority partner on a lot of our own projects because in order to leverage like the infrastructure and the reputation, you so if you have a social experiment, you go and partner up with a company that is well known for the best social experiments out there. So then we had to sort of reinvent that wheel and go back and forth. But then they have work that's more important to them. It's their own work or their own shows that are on the air. So they basically at that point, like they take six months to put any focus on your idea or they like half acid or they find out in some cases that they actually partner with you just so they could shelve your idea because Mm -hmm. they didn't even want to compete against it. So they just paid you a nominal fee to take it off the table or whatever the case may be. So these were all like growing pains learning along the way. The cool thing is that we started meeting some people along the way. So we would do consulting sort of work and got hired to help out with their formats. And it wasn't what we wanted to be doing, but it was allowing us to sustain what we were doing. And as a result of that, we uh, were fortunate enough to get to come on to the challenge on MTV and revamp a lot of the format and sort of breathe some life into some of the things that they were doing there, which for us was a really cool opportunity because it was something that was literally on the air. So we could actually like when we got to see like the promo for the season, it was something that we had actually worked on and were implementing. So for us, it was a lot of fun because it was like, oh, cool. Like now something we're doing is actually like coming to fruition. We're actually getting to see see how it actually plays out. So that was a big turning point in this whole process. Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about the challenge uh, like I mean, it seems like it's had a, a resurgence and people have been really complimenting the the new format. Um, is that like what you're part of uh, doing? We did work on the last uh, few seasons and uh, the overall team at the challenge is great. I mean, these it, that was what was so fun about this is that a lot of times um, these executives, they have no creative vision whatsoever. Imagine like the world's dullest man asking the most basic non-TV related questions and fixating on the stupidest, most asinine parts of the entire pitch. Like one time we had a competition show and the guy loved the show, but all he kept asking is, are they going to live somewhere? 
Are they going to live on an island? Are they going to live in a house? And we're like, dude, the show doesn't exist. They can live wherever the fuck you want. And like <laughs> one time we were doing a, uh, a, a celebrity-based show and we had a celebrity partner. And the executive said to us, we don't believe in your ability to book celebrities for the show. And our partner was there saying like, yeah, but I have letters of interest from all of these people. So we can book them. And they're like, no, you can't. And we're like, but we can. And they're like, you can't. And that was just the end of the discussion. <laughs> so we've dealt with like so many dolts and like, like the most insane suggestions and horrible ideas. So it was a miracle because at the challenge, these people are amazing at what they do. They get it. So it was so much fun working with people who actually understand it. So just collectively, we all got to go in and like, okay, how can we like turn this inside out and re-envision this? and find a way to like showcase the people everyone loves, the people that are new to this experience, mix it up and do something that people haven't seen before. And uh, I think it was just more than anything, it was just really rewarding to uh, work with people who, so we were up for this consulting gig against several other production companies and really established producers. And uh, when they called us, they said, um, well, we really loved you guys, but we thought we were going to have trouble getting you approved for this. So we were struggling with what to do. It would have been the easier road to just do someone who like, they kept asking us, like, we want to work with you, but like, have you ever consulted on an established series before? Like, if you can just tell us like, Hey, I worked on biggest loser 14, like we'll hire you today. Cause then the network will be okay with it. But we hadn't. So we, we, there was nothing that we could like kind of say in that situation. So they went to MTV and they're like, we got these two fucking nobodies here, but these are the people that we want to hire for this gig. And we feel that they're passionate and we feel like they're talented. Like, what do you think about this? And MTV was like, oh my God, we love those guys. We've been wanting to do something with them for the last couple of years. Please hire them. So that was hugely exciting and significant for us. Of course, then we do the whole consultation. It's like this whole whirlwind. The whole thing happens in like a week or two. And then like literally never hear from any of them ever again. <laughs> <laughs> like literally never like, never like, oh yes, here's what we we finalized here. How's the season went? Thanks so much for your time. Or like, as a result of doing this, we now want to partner on that. Nope. It was just like literally hired, did the work and just see you later. But it was still um, for us a big turning point in feeling. Um, and again, it's not about having the, the congratulations. I didn't need the pat on the back, but we did need the actual credibility as a company. Um, so again, not, not looking for validation that we were on the right path, but it was a turning point where it's like, okay, what we've been working hard on is actually going somewhere. So we, uh, we sort of had a meeting and said like, listen, we're going to keep on doing this. There's no, this is not a hobby anymore. This is not a, um, eh, let's see what happens. And if not, so be it. Like, this is our career. This is what we are going to do with our career. And we're going to continue to do it as our career until we have shows that are on the air. And that's what we've been doing now for the last year. We've been hardcore developing things, going out and shooting things, doing sizzle reels, doing formatting work, uh, consulting and this and that. And I love it, love it, love it, love it. And people still do not understand it at all because you could argue that I don't really have a job if that is how you want to perceive it. Or you could argue that I have a job that I'm working 90 hours a week on and, uh, you know, working my fucking ass off to no 
definitive light at the end of the tunnel. But for me, I've never felt more found or complete or fulfilled or satisfied in my career because I know that I'm finally doing what I'm really meant to be doing. And I know that I'll get there. And like, if, if anything I, I have in this especially, you see, it's very bizarre for me when I, I have come on the podcast in the past, or I do an appearance and people are, have been really kind and they're, they're, they're really out there. And I've never really talked about my life after Big Brother that much publicly. And the response is always so favorable and you're so great and whatever you're doing, I'm sure you are killing it and smashing it and this and that. And that's just not the case. It's really yeah. not the case. And it's exactly what I, I was. I was in disbelief when I was listening to your podcast with Rob because his story is so, so similar to mine. It's almost identical. And I think when you're a creative type, there just isn't a blueprint. And the only choices you can make are to stay all in and do what you love, like you are doing now and like I'm doing now or not. And if there's any takeaway from my incoherent rambling in this podcast, it's that I hope that someone out there who's listening says, you know what, it's time for me to go all in, or it's time for me to do something. And just because it's not what works for my friends or not what is the traditional path does not mean it's not what works for me because this is what works for me. I would much rather live off of a small amount of money and with uncertainty and be happy and be working towards show running and creating and executive producing my original ideas with my best friend every day for the rest of my life than I would be doing anything else. And I'm going to keep on doing it. And, and I really don't, I, you know, it, that is a success to me. I believe that that more tangible, practical success is on the near horizon for us, thankfully. But at the same time, I feel like uh, having this clarity and having something to be like truly excited about is already succeeding for me. Yeah, I mean, like the idea of you creating reality shows is is something that's like super exciting to me. Like the idea that like you might get something on the air if you did come up with like the next Survivor or a social experiment or whatever. Like, I think I would really enjoy watching that. And you're to you telling your story right now, uh, like. I think like you've mentioned, like along the way, you get people saying like, what are you doing with your life? Like why? Like this doesn't seem like a real thing. But if you're looking at it from the stance of like, if you if you do get a show on the air, if you do get something and it's like and it's like the next survivor and we're podcasting about it, then this feels like the oh, yeah, he was like, uh, you know, he worked his ass off. And this is like what he should have been doing all along, even though you faced out the entire time. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we're at right now. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. What people don't realize is like, if you create a TV show, you own it in perpetuity. So imagine owning the rights to the format The Bachelor. Like, yeah. so you then own every spinoff, every, you know, Ben and Lauren uh, freeform show that happens. <laughs> you, you own every Bachelor in Paradise, every Bachelor pad, every international version. Once you are have created something. It is yours in perpetuity for the end of time. So that's kind of the thing is that like, once you do one, you have succeeded. So there is just no middle ground, which is the really uncomfortable part for most people here. Right now, I don't see it as failing, but like in a more uh, like standard evaluation, <laughs> we're failing. But we're not failing. We're progressing. We're getting better partners and more work that's getting incredibly close and more follow-up money and more consultations and this and that. Um, but but really, 
yeah, there's there's it's either you you sell it or you don't sell it. And like I've been really excited to share some of the ideas with people, but it's a really weird industry because if the show hasn't been made yet, you don't want someone ripping off your idea. You don't want it to be like uh, publicly known. I've done projects with people that we know very, very, very well from the reality TV community. And we've come close to selling these together with them as on-air talents. And of course I want to tell the fan base about that. That's fucking fun and it's bizarre and it's so strange that here we are filming something. And um, it's, it's been tricky. And also like once you put it out there, then people are aware of it and they're monitoring it. And it's like, uh, you know, it's tough because the fans and the reality community, it's such a wonderful resource. And we've thought, boy, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face to not talk about this publicly because it's a good casting resource. Hell, a lot of you guys probably have amazing ideas. Hell, maybe we could partner on them and bring those out and we could have a contest on on Rob as a podcast and, <laughs> and, and, and the winner, we can shop their idea you know whatever the case may be um there's so many things that we've thought about it you know is there a a crowdfunding way of of helping sustain this is there a, a patreon thing but that's just not what it's about for us it's really just about us pursuing the passion and we didn't want the public pressure of making that a point and actually that's kind of why mike and i strangely enough started doing the podcast it was another break free of what is the public perception? What are you, quote, supposed to be doing? What is Eric's character? Eric, the nice guy. Eric, um, you know, who is succeeding in whatever mystery occupation he's doing. And I said, how about we just go and talk trash and nonsense <laughs> on a podcast and just do whatever we want to do? And the thing is, we don't have a boss. So it's not ruining Rob's brand if I go on and talk about something outrageous if it's my own <laughs> podcast. And he's like, well, is anyone going to listen? And I said, do you care if anyone listens? It's for our own benefit, our own amusement. And then people did listen. And um, it, it's it's just all of, has become for me about um, just tuning out the outside noise and the supposed to's and and just doing what works for me and and uh i really don't care if people <laughs> agree with it or like it or whatever it works for me yeah and i i think that's like the the most important aspect like even if even if you don't eventually get a, a show on the air and, and this doesn't become like the origin story of like the you know this the next big tv show or whatever you've found success in what you're doing and, and happiness in what you're doing and fulfillment in what you're doing and i think that's like that's really the most important part of all of it yeah i mean like uh, i don't know if you've seen the movie big at any point or whatever but like when tom hanks grows up and and he uh, joins the toy company and he's working there and his office is just filled with toys and he's running around like the schoolboy that he actually is on the inside and he's playing around in there that's what i feel like every day when i do this and it's it's sincerely so much fun and to be able to go to work and work hard every single day but feel as if this is something that I could actually do. You see, WWE was unsustainable to me. Talent management bored me into going on a reality show. A reality show made me lazy and guarded because I could make money in a short amount of time or I can't tell anyone I'm working on this project because it'll affect this other project or, or me in the game or whatever the case may be. 
And once I finally let go of all this, I now find myself just having fun with it. And I can imagine instead of feeling tortured by it all or lost by it all, instead, now I can go out and lead each day the way that I actually want to do so. So it, it really is has been very rewarding for me. That, that's so awesome to hear. And, uh, you know, I wish you uh, all the success in the world, man. Much appreciated. And same to you, because it feels like you are in your own way following a, a similar trajectory. So it's exciting to see you guys thriving and, and building out your own personal brand even more. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh, all right. So that is uh, that is our episode of The Terran Show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find a, you can find us on iTunes uh, at uh, The Terran Show, uh, T-A-R-A-N. Um, and of course, uh, on robhizawebsite.com, you can leave a comment there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Armstrong Terran. Eric is at Eric Stein. Eric Stein tweets. Tweets, Eric Stein tweets. Uh, and don't, for, don't forget Baby Dino the dog on Instagram. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, the most important plug of all. Because after uh, all, so many people are going to make it to the two-hour mark of this podcast. That's going to make his social media blow up for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's going to be tens of people who followed uh, Dino the dog from this one. It's really, it's going to be a bigger boon than uh, than the uh, the recap of the recap podcast. He, he got uh, over 200 new followers after that. There you go. All right. Well on his way. Exactly. He's, he's big time now. That's uh, my career as a pet agent. It still has some legs in it. 10% of everything he gets, you know, it's perfect. <laughs> uh, is that one of your pitches for a reality show? animal planet show <laughs> of just him sleeping all the time <laughs> it's like watch uh, watch dino sleep <laughs> the reality show <laughs> all right well uh there have been so many people that have been so helpful on itunes leaving uh ratings and reviews actually i'm just looking at this right now there's 146 five-star reviews and one one-star review i'm sorry about that i didn't mean Thanks to leave lot, that Eric. I, I was having a bad day <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to stick it to that one star person who wants to screw my podcast over make the ratio even worse <laughs> uh, all right so thank you again eric uh for coming on and thank you everyone uh who has been listening uh it's it's been such a fun ride and, and i continue to do this well into the future um uh so thank you so much to to all of my supporters um and uh I hope you uh, enjoy the next one as well. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) Uh, So thank you for joining us. I will see you next time. All right, cool. That was was great. Yeah, awesome. I mean, uh, I know we kind of like were meandering and I kind of repeated myself a bunch. So as you're going through this, if you want to, chop out any section it's totally at your discretion like i'm not precious about anything i said <laughs> so if you want to drop full sections or if there's parts where you feel like all right let's get on to the good stuff for the point and you want to drop stuff like 100 percent, feel free to do whatever you want with it cool yeah uh you're, you're gonna be like tweeting at me like oh he took my words out of context yeah, 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 yeah. the full thing <laughs> yeah i mean the thing is right there it, um what i have appreciated about this is that I feel like everyone has been candid and honest. I feel like everyone has said what they were really thinking, even if it wasn't necessarily crowd-pleasing. Like, uh, I mean, Ian expressed a lot of things about friends and people's intentions and this and that, but I think that that's actually what makes it work. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think one of the big issues here 
And and actually, I'm, I'm totally cool. Like, if you want to include this as part of the, the podcast, for me, one of the things that I think has been really interesting about your podcast is that um, people have been honest. And I think that people, they try and sort of preserve a character when they get off the show and a public persona. And they have to root people on and they have to put their best foot forward because otherwise they get absolutely flamed and they, they want to be perceived in a certain way. And what I'm really loving is the opportunity for people to like actually come out here and for better or worse, say what's really on their mind and, and be a little bit truer to their words. Because I feel like a lot of us have been holding on and biting our tongue for the past several years since we've been off the show. So I, I think that that's, uh, you know, something for me that this was really a welcome departure from that to be able to just, Hey, listen, I'm going to say some shit here. I probably shouldn't read the comments on this and that's fine. <laughs> you know, It's <laughs> yeah. fine. I'm okay with that. That's where I am right now. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's been like, uh, you know, I, you know, I try to provide a space where that's sort of like the, the norm and it's expected and like, it's not weird for you to be able to act like yourself. And it's also been the challenge of like, you know, sometimes you ask a question and you, you recognize that you're getting like the rehearsed answer. And so my, I look at my job as like, I need to try and like get deeper into this. And people have been very, very like, uh, willing to do that with me and go there with me. And that's been, uh, I've been so grateful. One thing Jordan said that really connected with me is how not everyone who was on Big Brother is a nice guy. Like, mm -hmm. and, and living in New York, I always liken it to when a new Broadway show comes out. If you love Broadway, your first inclination is, oh, I'm going to go see every new show that comes out. And then you along the way realize that's kind of expensive and I don't love all of them. So maybe I'll just go see the ones that are really speaking to me. And that's how through the years you start feeling about past reality TV contestants. When you first get off, you want to go meet everybody and talk to everyone and be everyone's friends. And now 10 years after the fact, you realize you've made some really great friends from this experience. And then there are a lot of real big assholes that are in this experience. And after a while, you just don't care anymore. I think, again, if you think you're playing again, maybe you like uh, have that in the back of your mind. So you need to kiss everyone's butt and you need to, to put out a certain narrative and root for certain people. And, and then when you're set free from that, you just realize, you know what, I can just appreciate that I made 10 of my best friends this way. And that's the extent of it. I'm not going to meet the rest of them. I don't <laughs> care. It's fine. And it's an interesting you know, way of, of, of living life. And I feel like, um, I, yeah, just more at peace with the whole thing now. Like, this is who I am. And what you realize along the way is that I don't want someone to be following on my career path or rooting me on or watching my media if they don't like me. So like, there's no reason to try and sway people or to cater to the negativity because I don't, I don't want to engage in the people that are the negative people. So if I lose 50% of the people who are not liking who the real me is, what do I care? Because those I, I don't want people who don't like me to be a part of my life. I want people who can appreciate me for what I am good and bad to be a part of my life. And and I think that that's a big change from the early years after the show where you feel compelled to like, oh, I'm going to go to Vegas and party with these people. And I want everyone to love me and, and show them how much fun I am and how I got a boring edit on the show. And I'm <laughs> I'm Mr. Personality and this and that. And now I just realized, like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> and it's, it's a good way, good way to live, really.
<laughs> well, uh, well, thank you for, for opening up to me and uh, uh, befriending me and coming on my podcast. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I, I look forward to uh, all of the hateful responses. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Parents asking questions. Parents finding out. Parents looking deeper. That's what it's all about. It's the Tales Show. So you.